Well, hello everybody. It is great to see you. Welcome, whether in person today, in the classic venue, in the live auditorium, maybe on our Moon campus, wherever you're tuning in, maybe online, wherever this is finding you, we're thrilled that you are with us. We, in these days, are thinking about the, path, the fact that God has a work that He is doing in us and that He is leading us and calling all of us to move from the place where we are to a new place that He would have us to be, that we are all on the way, as it were. We all start at some point. We're at different places, and that's okay. Pathway is a church made up of people who are at all points along the spectrum, but we're moving forward. We're moving toward God, and our desire is, my prayer for you, my prayer for me today, is that through our time that we have together, that we will take a step forward, that we'll take a step closer to Christ. For some of us, it might be a huge step today that we take. For some, it might be just a small step, but I would pray that that God would move us forward and that we would be receptive to where it is that He's taking us because there's no doubt but that God has a way forward and that He has something for us in our time together today. So I do welcome you. Thank you for coming and looking forward to this time that we have with one another. Now, as we get started today, I've got this uh, question for you. What is something that you regret? Right? Think about that for just a moment. What is something that you regret? If I asked you that question, what is it that you would say? It's important that we would be thinking along those lines. Today we are jumping back into a sermon series that we just started last week. It is called Strength and Weakness Part 2. This is taking a look at the second or the last chapters of a letter that we have been taking a look at. It's 2 Corinthians, and you're welcome to go ahead and open up a Bible, your Bible app to this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and beginning in verse 7 is where we're going to be. This is the, this is the second half of a letter, this series. That, that the Apostle Paul has written to a group of people in a church that wasn't all unlike ours. In fact, there were many similarities. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to take a look at that. And we're going to, to see that there are some things that apply so much to them that apply so much to us as well. So, as we get started, what are some things that you regret? What would you say in answer to that question? Maybe you have an embarrassing tattoo. (laughs) You thought it was so cool at one point when you got it, but today it's like, I'm just embarrassed about that. Maybe you regret that you own stock in Blockbuster or Sears, or maybe you bought into a timeshare that you regret in Wampum, right? Um, Those would be things that we would definitely regret. One of the things that I've recently come to regret was, was a decision to procrastinate fixing my furnace. Actually, what I needed to do wasn't fix it. They told me that I needed to replace it. But who wants to spend all the money to replace their furnace, right? I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars, and I didn't want to get into that, especially when I could manipulate it so that it would actually keep the house warm, usually. <laughs> the, the, the problem was that it would run, it would get the house warm, and then it would kick off, but it wouldn't kick back on. And you never knew quite when it was going to act up and when it wasn't. And so I would just kind of be playing this game, hoping that it would, would work out. Because if you just kick it off and back on, there it was. It would, it would kick back up for you. And this worked out fine until earlier this winter when it was particularly cold out. And, and Carolyn and I were away for a few days. 
And it happened to decide that it was while we were gone that it was going to go ahead and act up and not kick back on. Have you ever wondered how, how cold your house would get if it doesn't have heat in the middle of winter? I can answer that question. <laughs> it can get down to at least 42 degrees inside the house. I mean, that's kind of cold. The, the, the tile floors were like walking on sheets of ice. We could see our breath in the house. I'm not making that up. could see our breath. I went to eat something off of a metal spoon, and the spoon stuck to my tongue. No, that part didn't happen, but, but it was really cold in the house. I definitely regretted not going forward with fixing or replacing my furnace when we got home that particular night. Now, in the grand scheme of things, the fact that my house was cold wasn't all that big of a deal because we eventually got it warmed up, and I have yet to fix the furnace, and I, I know that I'm kind of playing with uh, fire there, but we still have yet to do that. But it wasn't that huge in the grand scheme of things, but there are some things that are. Maybe you regret that you've allowed work to overshadow your family. Maybe you regret that you didn't go on and get that degree that you were thinking about. Maybe you regret that you took the practical job instead of going after the dream job. Maybe you regret that you broke up with that true love that you had found. Maybe you regret that you didn't put in the work that was necessary to fix a relationship. Maybe you regret that you are always too concerned about making somebody else happy or too concerned about what other people think. What's your regret or regrets? Sometimes the regrets that we have are in matters of faith. We regret that we didn't get serious about pursuing faith earlier in our lives. Or we regret that we did get serious about it earlier, but as we look back, we really haven't made all that much progress when it comes right down to it. Maybe we regret that we haven't been bolder with our faith. Maybe we regret that even today, it seems difficult to light a fire underneath our spiritual self or to sustain a fire under ourself. And the problem with all of this is, is that when these regrets come up, oftentimes they act as demotivators to sort of getting in the game and moving forward because we consider the fact that we've already wasted so much time, that we've already lost so much ground, that even if we get serious about it today, we're never going to catch up to where we might have been. And so it becomes rather demotivating. This is why taking a look at the Apostle Paul is so interesting. Because the Apostle Paul was a guy who had tremendous regrets himself. He would come to the place where he would regret the fact that he was working against Christ for so long. He would regret the fact that he persecuted Christians. He was the guy who says, I do the things that I know I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I know that I should do. That's our guy. He's full of regrets. Yet as we look at his life, what we see is that he's not a guy who allows those things to steal his motivation. In fact, what we find is a guy who's giving himself fully and completely to everything that he can do, to capturing every opportunity possible to follow after 
Christ. And we find Him at a place where ultimately He's living with no regrets, which is fascinating to say the least. And we're going to take a look at Him and His approach and how He moves forward, hoping that we might be able to pick up on some of that motivation for ourselves, that we'd be able to overcome some of those hurdles that might be stalling us, that would be stalling you today from actually taking the steps forward so that you'd stop being in a place where you're regretting the things that you're not doing or regretting the places that you haven't been able to take yourself to this point. Today we're going to take a peek at all of this so that we can see what it it means to be living with no regrets. To be living with no regrets. Now, just as Paul was striving to live beyond regrets for himself, he's also very concerned for these people in this church that he's writing to. That they would get to a place where they would stop having regrets. Where they would stop acting and living and responding in ways either through their own prejudice or through the influence of false teachers who would come around. That they'd be able to overcome those things and move to a place where they'd stop regretting where they were or stop setting themselves up for regret. These are things that we need too. So we're going to take a look at this because Paul gives us through this section that we're looking at some of the things that we can overcome that if we don't are going to no doubt land us in a place of regret. So the first of the things that he tells us to open their eyes and to open our eyes that we need to do, he says you need to judge rightly. If you want to live with no regrets, you've got to be in a place where you're judging rightly. What's that mean? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at this. Paul gets right to it as our passage starts for today in verse 7. It says, you are judging by appearances. He says, you're judging. This is talking to the church who are being influenced in part by false teachers who have come into the church. He says, you're judging by appearances. In other words, you're allowing how things look to overshadow how things really are. And the fact is, we're all susceptible to falling into that trap because study after study shows us that it's the most attractive people who often get the best jobs, who have the most influence, and become the pastor at Pathway. All right, so exactly. All right, so there's obviously one, at least one of those where 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 looks does not help you at all, right? Uh, yeah, that doesn't apply. All right, doesn't apply here, but it is a real thing. This thing we're talking about, and in Corinth, people were being influenced by appearances. Maybe they were physical. Maybe they were through the the false information that these teachers were trying to spin and and put into their lives. But they were allowing just appearances to influence them. The problem is that looks can be deceived. Deceiving. We know this, right? Looks can be deceiving. Let me show you. Anybody hungry? All right. How would you like to have some of this delicious ice cream? Anybody want that right now? Yeah. I think all of us would probably want some of that right now. Do you ever wonder how these photographers get it to look so perfect? I mean, they're taking out the ice cream. They're putting it in room temperature. They've got these lights on it while they're taking the pictures. How in the world do they get it to look so beautiful, this ice cream. Well, the reason is because it's not ice cream. It's mashed potatoes. It's colored mashed potatoes that you see right here. Now, mashed potatoes are good too, but they're not ice cream. I think we'd probably most all agree with that, right? And what about that refreshing, the refreshing bubbles that you see in in a soda? That looks so good. But 
Those bubbles dissipate so quickly, a photographer couldn't possibly get all those great shots unless you would put in some antacid tablets. And that's what they do so that it looks the way that it looks, so appealing, and you, and you just want to buy that. Or what about that delicious-looking stack of pancakes with the gooey syrup that's running down it? We all would love that. The problem is that the pancakes absorb the syrup too quickly. And so instead, what they do is they pour on motor oil. That's what you're buying into. Truth is, looks can be deceiving. And that's the thing that's going on here in Corinth. These false teachers, they are trying to use appearances against Paul. For one thing, they're trying to use his physical appearance against him. Now, Paul, I don't know if you know this, Paul was a guy who wasn't known to be all that Brad Pittish, okay? He wasn't known to be all that good-looking. In fact, one first-century description of Paul went like this. He's a man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and legs were a little crooked, and he had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. That's not too flattering. I once had somebody tell me that I reminded them of the Apostle Paul. Now I know why. I thought they were being kind to me until I read all of that. But in Corinth, they were using anything that they could against Paul, and they even stooped to his physical appearance. They said, why would you want to follow this guy? Look at him. How can he be intelligent? How can he lead? You want to follow him? They stooped that much to appearances, to trying to, to try to discredit Paul and get people to go off in another direction. And that's not all. We see more of it as the passage goes on. Verse 7 continues. It says, If anyone is confident, in, confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. In chapter 11, the next chapter, we're going to see that these false teachers are probably from Judea. Judea is the place where Jesus lived and where Jesus ministered. And so it looks like they've come on the scene and they've said, you know what, you should listen to us, not Paul, because we were there. We met Jesus. We listened to him talk a few times also as though that is giving them some sort of spiritual power and authority over everybody else and certainly over Paul. They probably would have said, Paul wasn't even there. Paul never even met Jesus. Well, except for when Jesus appeared to him on the road, you know, all by himself. You know, he got that thing, yeah. But they're kind of discounting that. It's like, look, the appearance is we were there. We're the ones that you ought to be listening to. No, but that's not the basis of spiritual authority. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Paul is the one who had authority because Jesus called him, commissioned him to go and serve, and specifically to go and establish churches in different places like in Corinth. That was specifically part of God's call on Paul's life. You can tell that Paul is a little bit reluctant to just flex his spiritual authority because of his personal humility here, but eventually it's like, well, I'm going to have to speak up because otherwise the truth is just going to be discarded. The truth is going to be a casualty, so he does have to speak up about the fact that God called him to go and to serve so that these people might judge 
rightly. Then Paul addresses one other circumstance that they're trying to use to make Paul appear in a bad light. Verse 9, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Now, I don't think Paul's offended by what their comments were. I don't think that he is trying to defend a wounded pride on his part. It's that he doesn't want the truth to be veiled or overshadowed by their accusatory remarks. So, Paul urges them to keep their eyes open and not get sucked into their attacks. Now look, I know that it's easy for us to fall into the traps of of judging by appearances. It might look like an unscrupulous business competitor is getting the advantage over you. It might look like the guy who cuts corners at work is actually the boss's favorite and is getting ahead. It might look like the, the kid at school that's so arrogant that he's the one who's so popular. It might look like your intention and your desire and your efforts to follow after Christ that they're they're not paying off. Don't let anybody cut in and sell you a message that honoring Christ is a waste of your life and that following after their life philosophy because they have had some some success in some way or shape or fashion that that's the way that you ought to go, that that's the better way, the better path to go. Look, we're all going to face hardships to be sure, but hardship isn't a sign that you've been abandoned by God. What it is is an opportunity to lean into God and rest in His provision, which ultimately is going to win the victory one day. It gives us the opportunity to demonstrate our faith. It gives us the opportunity to follow into a world filled with sin and animosity. So don't get led astray by influences that don't have your best interest in mind. Open your eyes. Paul's telling them, open up your eyes. All right? Don't just look at appearances. Look underneath. And as you do so, you'll be able to judge rightly. And as you do so, you won't be left with regret. Want to live with no regret? There is a place to start. Another step in living with no regrets is to serve authentically. Serve authentically. Paul's determination on this point is driven by the abuses he sees to it. He mentions it right away in verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. He's talking about these false teachers who've rolled into the church and have revised the standards that people are seeking to live by and operate by. They're saying, look, the way that things have been, we're going to change that, all right? Now, here's the way that you need to respond. This is the sort of lifestyle that is acceptable. This is what you ought to believe about truth. And uh, let us just tell you, and the interesting thing is that it's the ones who are coming in and who are changing the standards who are the ones who are saying, we're the ones who have the new standards, and you ought to listen to our new standards, and by by the way, they're the things that we believe, Right? And so they're just sort of taking over and saying we're going to change it all and move it in our direction. It would be kind of like this. All right? Think of it maybe like this. Let's say that Pathway had a practice of giving away $100 bills at every worship service. All right? And all you had to do is be present to win, and the one who would get it each time would be the person 
whose birthday is closest to the date that it happened to be. All right? Anybody here have a birthday today? All right? How about this week or last week? A couple weeks? Okay, we have somebody right down here. All right? Dennis. Great. Unfortunately for you, Dennis, we're changing the rules. All right? It's not going to be based on who has the nearest birthday. It's going to be based instead on some other criterion. And everybody is eligible. I'm going to give this away. Everybody is eligible as long as you are in the room with me right now. So if you are, would you please stand up if you have any interest in possibly being considered. So every, come on, everybody stand up. And the one who's still standing at the very end is the one who's going to get the $100, all right? So here's the new criterion. It's not based on your birthday. The first one is you have to be right-handed. So if you're left-handed, I need you to sit down. There is not only one person in this room that's left-handed. I don't believe you. All right. Okay, well, that's one. So, so you, 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 okay, there are a few. Okay, so, uh, so you don't get that. That was one thing. You also have to have blue eyes. If you don't have blue eyes, you need to sit down. All right, we're ruling some people out here. Now, you also have to have a watch on. You have to have a watch on. If you don't have a watch on, you've got to sit down. All right? Now, you have to have a first name that begins with the letter A through L. If it's not A through L, you've got to sit down. All right? Now, just a couple more. You have to be standing on the platform and wearing a microphone. Anybody? Anybody? Nobody? I mean, I'm the only one. Well, that's awesome. It looks like I'm the one who wins the hundred bucks. That's fantastic. Did that seem fair to you? No, that didn't seem very fair to you at all. It seemed like I sort of manipulated things to serve to my benefit, doesn't it? Absolutely it looks that way. And <laughs> that's what you expected of me anyway, right? That's exactly what they were doing in Corinth. The false teachers came in. They said, look, we're going to be serious about pursuing God. Now, here's, here's the rules. I know that previously it had all been established, and that's the way it always operated, but we're going to change that. And it just happens to work out to my benefit at the end. Certainly doesn't seem fair. That's exactly what they were doing there. And because there were people in the church who weren't discerning enough to figure that out for themselves, Paul had to step in. He had to say, look, guys, this is the way that it is. This is what these false teachers are teaching. Then he goes on. There's more. Verse 13 says, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God Himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We're not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits of boasting of work done by others. Look, Paul is using these words of boasting, but it's not that he's boasting in himself. Paul knew that it was just that his part was just to be a servant in preaching the gospel of Christ, and it is God who came in and provided the increase. What is happening is that God has placed his commission, his call on Paul, and Paul has just said, okay, I'll do that. 
I will follow. I will go and serve as you are calling me to serve. That was Paul serving authentically according to his call. And it's leaving him with no regrets. So it's right that Paul would remind the church of the foundation on which it was built according to the call of God, according to the message of Christ, that that's what it has been built on. And they need to be sure that nobody comes and crowds in and says all of a sudden that foundation is no more and we're just going to establish based on on what I think it ought to be. That's what he's speaking to. That's why Paul speaks up, and he wants the people to recognize that there are those who are seeking to tear them away from the foundation of Christ, which is going to take them off into error, and he doesn't want them to be there because he knows that that's going to lead to regret and problems. So Paul is coming, and he's just serving authentically according to what God had called him to do. And that's where it leads it. Now, it's easy to get swept up in the latest fad or some program that seems to be having some success somewhere or because of something new that came in and everybody's excited about it. So let's just go and follow after that. And it is important that we would examine some of those things, maybe even embrace some of those things. I am all for bringing whatever change is necessary to move us forward into where God would have us to be. But at the same time, friends, it's also vital that we would establish truth and sound doctrine and that it would prevail. That's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for our elder board here at Pathway. This is a group of very wise and spiritually mature and grounded individuals who are are very concerned to make sure that we don't run off into error while at the same time making sure that we capitalize on whatever we can for the future. It's a perfect balance. But we have people guarding the gate in that regard, so that we don't get pulled off into things that would not honor Christ, that would be things that ultimately, as a body, we would regret that we'd move toward. Paul is wanting to make sure that that's not happening here because it had been sneaking in, and so he's trying to counteract that. And then one more thing here. Can move a, to move ahead with no regrets, we need to judge justly, we need to serve authentically, and lastly, we need to boast wisely. Now, you might say, boast wisely? Can you really work those two words together? I mean, if you're boasting, doesn't that mean you're not wise? Well, that's a good catch, but let's take a look at what he's actually saying here. It has something to do with exactly what we're boasting in. If it's all self-serving and it's all for our own purpose and it's all to lift ourselves up, then yes, absolutely. The bells should go off. The red flag should be raised. But Paul isn't boasting in himself. You can see that as the text continues. Verse 15 Picks it up. Our hope is that our faith continues to grow. Our sphere of activity among you will, be ex- will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. There were more places like Philippi. Paul is serving now in Corinth, but he'd also been through Macedonia in places like Philippi, and then on to Thessalonica, and on to Berea, and now down to Corinth in southern Greece. And he's been ministering in all of these places, places that God has called him, that he's been so faithful to go and to serve to see the church be established there after the preaching of the gospel. He had no desire to run off to this other place over here that might already be doing a good gospel work, but he had nothing to do with it. He's not, he doesn't have any desire to go over there because that's not his call to go in and say, you know what, I'm going to preach a few messages here and then I'm going to claim spiritual authority over this place. I'm going to boast in all that I have done to make it that this town, this place is thriving as it is. He says, that's not my business. That's not what I'm about, but that's exactly what these folks were doing who had now come into 
Corinth. Paul says, absolutely, there should be some boasting, but it's not taking credit for ourselves. It's giving credit away. Verse 17, but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. But let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord, whom the Lord commends. We can spend a whole lot of time trying to set up circumstances, even doing ministry toward the end of getting recognized, of being honored ourselves. But Paul says that's not the one who gets honored. In fact, as you do so, that's going to bring disgrace. That's going to be, bring dishonor. You've already received your reward, essentially. He says it's the one that the Lord commends who is ultimately commended. The irony is that the simplest commendation coming from the hand of God is better than the greatest commendation that you can manipulate for yourself. It's just the way that it is. But yet, even with that understanding, we still sort of get sucked into this realm of living for self, not for the Savior. For self, not Savior. And I can promise you, if you do that, it's going to lead you, maybe sooner, maybe later, to regrets. Because in a moment of clarity, you're going to understand how far you've fallen, how far you are from being at the place where God would have you to be. And you quite likely will be discouraged about how you've gotten there, and the road to get to where you ought to be just might seem so steep that you're not even sure that you're ready to try. And some of us have been there. Some of us are there right now. We know that we're not all that we should be, but somehow we just don't have it in us to to set that aside and get going on the right path. We probably have some regrets. We might stuff them as best we can, but in our lucid moments, they sort of wash over us, and we feel that regret. Look, I understand living with no regrets sounds like an impossible standard. I get it. But here's the thing. Living with no regrets doesn't flow from a perfect life. It flows from a surrendered one. Living with no regrets doesn't flow from a perfect life so that when we trip and when we stumble, we don't need to consider ourselves just so far gone off the path that it's not worth coming back. It doesn't come from a perfect life. It comes from a surrendered life. When we live a surrendered life, we seek to come under the purpose and the call of God like Paul does right here. You're not going to live perfectly, but having a surrendered orientation means that we're going to naturally choose when we stumble, we're going to have a natural inclination to come back under the purposes and the power of God. It's when, when, when we refuse that, when we don't surrender, Yeah, we still want to live with no regrets, but it's going to be this dichotomy between lifting ourselves up because that's centered to who we are and maybe trying to lift God up, but the dichotomy is such that we can't possibly move forward with success in both of those realms. And inevitably, it's going to deposit us right back in regret. There's no other way around it. So, the question for all of us to consider is this one. What's the next step of surrender for me? 
What's the next step of surrender? As you think about where you are and where you would be going forward, maybe it's time to stop dragging your heels on what you know God is asking of you. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's to finally jump into that small group. Maybe it's to find some place to serve. Maybe it's getting more connected to worship. Be more consistent in the engagement by which you join in. Maybe it's got to do with giving. Maybe it's got to do with reading. Maybe it's got to do with prayer. Whatever it is, if you're going to keep playing the regret game, you're never going to overcome the hurdle. So, what is the next step of surrender for me? Whatever that is, I pray that you would stop resisting and that you would take that step, however big it might be, however small it might be. We're back to where we got started, that we're on the way. All of us are on the path. All of us are on the journey. Maybe the step that God is calling you to here today, right now, is a big one. I mean, it's jumping into something that you've known in the back of your mind that He's leading you to, and you just have been too afraid to take the step. Maybe what you feel called to today is just a small step. It's about getting connected to whatever it might be for you. You're the one who knows that. What I know for sure is that God's got a step for all of us. So are you willing to acknowledge that? And are you willing, if you don't know what it is in the moment, to find it? And if you do know what it is in the moment, to take it? I pray that you would, because if the Spirit of God is leading us in a direction, if we don't take it, we're going to find ourselves in regret. Living with no regret doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that we're surrendered. What's the next step of surrender for you? Our Heavenly Father, it can be very difficult to live a life of surrender. We love to take control. We love to lead ourselves. We love to guide. We love to, to suggest that there's nothing that we need. And we've learned how to live that life well. But when we stop and when we pause and we, when we really ask ourselves where we are, inevitably, it's met with regret. Paul was a guy who was there himself, but he shows us a path to overcome to move forward. Lord, I pray that we would not be demotivated by the things that we've let slide in the past, that we'd be demotivated by the size of the hill or the steepness of the hill that looks to be in front of us, but that we just take a step. We don't have to crest and overcome the hill in a moment, but we need to take a step. Lord, I pray that we would be clear on what that step is, and that we'd be willing 
to go, to follow. Lord, that we would be found living with no regret, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do pray that we would be serious about the significance of taking the step. We're all on the way. We're on the journey. We need to take the step forward. Pray that you would take that today, if you can, tomorrow, or very soon.